Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to be along for some more half-assed history. On the agenda this week, going to be having a chat about the complicated relationship of Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I. Now, Queen Elizabeth I of England is obviously, even today, probably one of the most famous, famous English monarchs in history, but a lot of her early career was very, very heavily influenced by another queen, Mary Stuart, or as, as she's generally known today, Mary Queen of Scots. Now, these two queens, they, they shared this super weird relationship where they obviously cared about one another a lot because of their family ties, but also absolutely hated each other because of their religious differences and, uh, their, and their differing ambitions. So today, we're going to get across this and explore what was a fascinating relationship between two very, very powerful women uh, back in the 16th century. So let's uh, set the stage here with the birth of Mary. Mary Stuart, born on the 8th of December, same birthday as my dad. Don't forget that. Happy birthday, Dad, when, when it gets to it. If, uh, if I forget in December, this counts. Uh, in 1542, as the daughter of James V of Scotland and a French noblewoman named Mary of Guise. Uh, probably not the way that it's pronounced, but we're just going to roll with it. Uh, now, she's a descendant of, her- of Henry VIII through her grandma, who was Henry's sister. So she's a great, great niece of... Uh, uh, of Henry VIII, and she's a Catholic, which is uh, it's going to become pretty important very soon, as you'll see. So don't forget that Mary, the Scot, a Catholic. Now her old man James V dies when she is just six days old. So she's the Queen of Scotland from the get-go. She's in, she enjoys five days of you know peace and uh, and, and re- relaxation before becoming the monarch of a European country. Um, so uh, even though she is the, the Queen of, of Scotland, uh, she doesn't spend very much of her childhood there because in 1546, uh, just a couple of years, you know, f- you know, four years after she's born, the King of France, Henri II, gets in touch and says, bloody bonjour, you blokes. Uh, how about the old marriage between uh, young Mary and my boy here? So it's arranged that she will marry the Dauphin or the heir of France, who is a kid whose name is, of course, Francois. Uh, what else was he going to be called? Uh, with the idea of uniting France and Scotland when they eventually have a kid of their own. Now, this was not unusual. It's sort of, we, we sort of think of this as being very strange because, you know, throughout this period of history, uh, England and France were always fighting each other. But at this point, 
Scotland is a completely separate country. Separate country, separate leadership system, separate rulers, separate even separate religion now. And there is this thing called the old alliance between Scotland and France because the thing that they have in common, as all you know, good, sensible people around the world do, is hating the English. I'm sure many people who listen to this podcast can relate to that. Irish people, Welsh people, Australians, Kiwis, Scots, you know, you name it. Everyone has this grand tradition of hating the English. And the French are no exception at this point, so good on them there. Anyway... Mary gets packed off to live in France, and a string of regents rules Scotland for her, one of who, uh, one of whom, oh, excuse me, wow, nearly fell into that uh, viper pit there, one of whom was in fact her old mum. And uh, Mary does very well uh, at court in France. Everyone bloody loves her because she's smart as hell. She's smart as a button, this kid. She can speak seven languages, play the lute, write poetry, and she also loves stuff like falconry and horseback riding being outside. Now, interestingly, she's also bloody huge. She is 180 centimetres tall, basically six foot, which was a towering height uh, uh, back in those days at all, and especially for a woman. I mean, even back in those days, 180, even as a bloke, you were tall if you were nearly, if you know, approaching six foot as 180 centimetres tall. But as a woman, geez, you're a, you're a towering figure. So everyone's a big, big fan of this girl, except, except, of course, the mother-in-law. Francois's mum uh, is a nasty piece of work. Uh, her name is Catherine de Medici, and uh, she does not like Mary a one little bit. When Mary is 16, Henri uh, II, who again is the king of France, he dies. And so it's time for Francois to take up the throne as Francois II. And this is where Elizabeth's interest in Mary starts to really arc up. Because all of a sudden, she is the, uh, she's the wife, Mary is the wife of the French king. Now, let's, let's jump over and talk about Elizabeth for a second here. She's born on the 7th of September, 1533, which means that she's nine years older than Mary. And they're related, too. They're be, they, they are their first cousins uh, once removed. So Elizabeth's parents were Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, who was wife number two for old Henry. She had her head lopped off when Elizabeth, Elizabeth was two and a half. And when Henry dies in 1547, his son Edward VI ascends, but he barely lasts six years, and he dies when he's 16 years old at, fifth, at the age of, uh, sorry, in the year 1553, 16, as I said. Uh, after that, it's Henry's daughter Mary I who takes the throne, but again, she's dead after about five years, and this means that Elizabeth, as the only surviving child of Henry VIII, becomes queen in 1558. Now, the issue here, the big issue here, is that Elizabeth, like her old man Henry VIII, is a Protestant, meaning that the Catholics up and down England don't see her as a legitimate queen and start to look for a different Catholic monarch to replace her. Now, no prizes for guessing where they start to look to neighbouring countries that are ruled by Catholics to see if anyone might be interested in the top job. Now, before he dies, the French King Henri II, the, again, the father-in-law of Mary, takes advantage of this situation with Elizabeth being unpopular with some of her subjects and proclaims that Francois and Mary are rightfully the King and Queen of England as Catholics. So when he dies in 1559, a year after Elizabeth has plonked her royal ass down onto the English throne, you've got Francois II in France with a wife who many are claiming is the rightful queen of England as well as Scotland, and this is where stuff really starts to kick off. The reason that she is claimed to be the king of England, Mary this is, is because she is a Catholic descendant of a previous monarch. Elizabeth's claim to the English throne is easy to contest by the Catholics because one, she's a Protestant, and two, she's a woman. Now, obviously, again, these idiots will take... 
uh, will, you know, will turn a blind eye to these things when it suits them, and they'll put a Catholic woman on the throne. But disputing the, the claim of Elizabeth I was easier because of these factors. And as a result of this, Francois and Mary, as Catholics, are proclaimed by many to be the king and queen of England, as well as of Scotland, as well as of France. Now, I'll tell you who does not like this situation, and that is young Elizabeth I. She is not a start of this upstart Scotswoman and her French mates, again, all of them Catholics, threatening her Protestant regime with all these bloody Catholics running around saying Mary is the rightful queen, doesn't like it one bit. So she gets on the front foot, she starts swishing around the willow, and she gives these bastards a bit of a hiding. In 1560, she aids and abets a Protestant uprising in Scotland, where a bunch of blokes are pissed off with Mary and her, and her, and her Catholic leadership, and and so the uh, Elizabeth sort of adds fuel to the fire, under the, it lights a fire under these Protestants' asses, and... Uh, uh, and, you know, causes, stirs up some trouble there for Mary. Now, at this stage, Mary's still in France, and the fact that there, is, there are quite a number of French troops in Scotland means that some people are very, very unhappy with things there. And it all goes tits up in June when Mary's mum, who, who again, remember, is the Scottish region, and, and confusingly also called Mary, uh, goes off and dies, and, and this, thing, uh, this really stuffed things up, stuffed things up for our, our friend Queen Mary uh, Stuart. There is a huge amount of pressure on Scotland with 12,000 English troops up and about pushing the French around, generally making life difficult for Scotland. And the Scottish lords uh, in charge of things up there, they're forced to sign the Treaty of Edinburgh on the 5th of July in 1560. This makes Scotland move away from the alliance with the French and also acknowledge Elizabeth as the legitimate ruler of England. And the treaty is signed against the wishes of Mary herself. Remember, she's in France and uh, as the French uh, Queen Consort, and so she can't involve herself in the day-to-day stuff in Scotland. And so her, her ruling council of lords kind of take over there and sign this, even though she doesn't want it. She doesn't want her, you know, not tenuous, but, you know, at least nebulous uh, claim on the English throne to be signed away like that, but that's what happens all the same, and, and all of a sudden, Elizabeth virtually uncontested. The result is this. Elizabeth wins an early victory in establishing her Protestant queendom, and Mary is just absolutely spewing it, having been so comprehensively ruined uh, by her own ministers. And this is where the rivalry between these two young queens begins to burn hot and bright. But unfortunately for Mary, after this, it only gets worse for her, as uh, six months after the Treaty of Edinburgh, her husband, Francois II, dies. He's only 16, and he's ruled for just over a year, and this means Francois' mum, Catherine, becomes the regent. And as you'll remember, she hates Mary. She hates her guts, and so so she tells her to pack her bags and leave town. She is not interested in having this young Scot around anymore. Mary packs up all of her stuff, says goodbye to France, which, again, has been her home for the last 10 years, and heads back to miserable old uh, cloudy Scotland there, rain pissing down, of course, get some fried Mars bars, some haggis into her as well, cheer up after the long journey, uh, to, again, take the Scottish throne properly. So in 1561, we've got Mary setting up shop in Scotland, and she and Elizabeth are now neighbours. And, you know, I'll tell you this, they've got both got a lot in common. They're both very young, they're both queens, they both speak the same language, and it looks a little bit like their religious differences and their rivalry might be able to be put aside for a little bit here, because Elizabeth got what she wanted in solidifying her, her claim on, on, on the Queendom of England. And, uh, and Mary now, obviously after having lost a fair bit, is still the Queen of Scotland and still having a great time. So... Apart from the, you know, the old hiccup here and there, Mary and Elizabeth 
they make a show of being friendly to one another and sort of trying to get on. But again, there are a couple of hiccups, as I say, you know, the old massacre of Protestants or whatever. But, you know, apart from that, there are a few years of relative peace between the two queens, between the two neighbouring countries. Things start to get a little bit uh, skew if, however, in 1562, when Mary starts to shop around for a new fella. Obviously, she wants a new husband for herself, seeing as Francois shuffled off this mortal coil, uh, because she doesn't have an heir, and she obviously wants one. So she, uh, you know, she gets on the old 16th century royal Tinder, and she's off to the races, swiping left and right like an absolute fiend. And the first bloke that she starts eyeing up is Carlos, the Prince of Asturias, an heir to the Spanish throne. So this is some real Game of Thrones type stuff, you know, trying to marry off, trying to, you know, get get the the best heir possible. Everyone's been playing Crusader Kings, having a great time, and they're and obviously looking to make advantageous political marriages. Now, when Elizabeth gets wind of this, she says, listen here, merry old mate. There will be big trouble if you go after him because I'm not having another bloody Catholic monarch brought into our business. And Elizabeth went ahead and made some suggestions of her own. She put forward a couple of her blokes, you know, suge- you know, sort of trying to play the wingman here, trying to trying to hook her sister up, saying, uh, you know, check out these blokes. How about Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester? And, and this caught a lot of people by surprise because old Robbo was uh, rumoured to be having it away with Elizabeth herself. So you can imagine what the gossip rags at the time must have looked like here. Anyway, this whole Spanish business, it, it comes to nothing, essentially. It turns out that uh, Elizabeth actually helped uh, Mary dodge a bullet because Prince Carlos ends up being a bit of a wacko. His dad, Philip, uh, locks him in solitary confinement in the palace in Madrid. Uh, he, it's said that the, the King Philip personally nailed up the windows with his councillors, and uh, poor Carlos died six months later. He was uh, a, few, a few sandwiches short of, short of a, a, a picnic, I think it's fair to say. Anyway, anyway, Mary ends up settling on another bloke, her cousin, which is a very fashionable thing to do at the time, whose name is Henry Stuart, but he's better known by his title, Lord Darnley. Now, if Elizabeth was pissed off about uh, involving the Catholic Spaniards, she is spitting chips uh, about this new bloke, Lord Darnley. The reason for this was that not only was this prick Darnley a Catholic, he was also related to Henry VIII and so had a weak claim to the English throne. In 1565, when Mary and Darnley tie the knot, Elizabeth is furious and after this gives up all pretense at friendliness. This rivalry becomes even more bitter a a year later in 1566 when Mary and Darnley sprogged out a kid named James. James's birth strengthened Mary's claim to the English throne as she now had an heir, which of course Elizabeth didn't, because, you know, as we all know, she died without children. And more than this, James himself, the kid, had the strongest claim of anyone to the English throne as he inherits the claims of both of his parents and is Catholic and is male. So after everything, in 1566, we're back to these two women absolutely hating each other, again engaged as furious rivals. And again, this all comes down to the way that claims on these thrones worked and the fact that, you know, the right of, uh, uh, you know, that conquest would determine, you know, who had the, the, the greatest claim to the throne, how many people you could get behind you based on your gender, your, you know, what heirs you had, uh, your parentage, all of that sort of thing, your religion uh, influenced how strongly you could push your claim for a kingdom that, you know, you may not have possessed. And, and again, Elizabeth's position Protestant female without an heir, a little bit tenuous, so she's very, very worried. Now, the situation between Mary and Elizabeth this this stage, acrimonious, hot-headed, difficult, uh, you know, very bitter, this is often the, the, the broad characterization that is made between these two queens. They're, you know, they're huge enemies, they're both politically, personally, they generally couldn't stand each other. 
and I guess for the most part, it's not totally unfair to put it this way. But I was very interested to read about just how much of a roller coaster ride their relationship was. As we see in 1567, when the old rivalry gearbox, which again is full steam ahead at this stage, gets chucked into reverse. Because check this out. What happens is this. On the 10th of February in 1567, a year after they've, uh, you know, uh, Mary and, and, and Darnley have had their kid, there is a huge explosion at a place called Kirk of Field in Edinburgh. Now, Lord Darnley, he had been hanging out there and his battered corpse is found in the garden after this place has been blown to smithereens. Now, this plot is about to get particularly thick and juicy here because I'll tell you this, Mary and Darnley, despite having a kid, despite having little James, did not have a happy marriage at all. Darnley was just the king consort, but he wanted to be the full-blown king of Scotland and rule alongside Mary as an equal. And Mary thought about this, you know, considered it, weighed it up, and then told it to blow it right out his ass and put a huge strain on their marriage in doing so. Even before young James was born, they didn't like each other all that much because Mary was just point blank refusing to make Darnley the, the, the full king. He wanted to, you know, she wanted him to just remain as the, as the consort. Anyway, because of this, rumours start to swirl about the explosion itself and suspicion begins to land on this bloke James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell. Confusingly, again, Mary's Son is called James, and now this bloke also called James. We'll stick with Bothwell here to, to you know, keep things separate. There are stories about this bloke Bothwell rooting the Queen, and, and, and the two of them certainly are very, very good mates. So obviously people start to talk about Mary perhaps being complicit in killing her husband as the two of them didn't get on so, uh, on so well and, and that Bothwell had so much to benefit from the death of Darnley. Bothwell ends up being acquitted, by the way, but nonetheless, some doubts still remain about the whole business. But what's really interesting here is that Elizabeth, after hearing about her rival being in hot water like this, she flips the script and actually starts showing sympathy for Mary. She writes to her saying that she thinks of her as a daughter and telling her to butt out of the whole scandal, distance herself from, uh, from this bloke Bothwell. And so all in all, being very, very friendly with someone who you know, she's supposed to despise and see as a threat. But this is just the first twist of the roller coaster. Because now Mary goes right ahead and completely ignores Elizabeth's advice. Elizabeth reckons that she needs to get past this big controversy, defend her reputation, but Mary does the complete opposite. On the 15th of May, still in 1567 here, Mary goes right ahead and marries James, Earl of Bothwell, this character, the very same guy accused of murdering Darnley. So if anyone had any doubts about Mary's involvement in Darnley's murder now... This puts them well and truly to rest, as she's now hopped into bed with this bloke only three months after her previous husband was murdered. So, Mary was expecting things to be smoothed over well enough now because Bothwell was mates with many of the Scottish lords, the ministers, the council, who, you know, signs off on all of her decisions. Uh, but things go downhill very quickly indeed. They couldn't believe that she'd shack up with the bloke who was thought to have murdered her husband. And on top of this, they're arguing that the marriage was invalid anyway because it was a Protestant ceremony and Bothwell had divorced his previous wife just two weeks beforehand. So the result of this, this absolute hot mess here is that the Scottish lords raise an army against Mary only a month later, and without even taking to the battlefield, Mary is captured by these blokes. So she has made a couple of very poor decisions, and as a result, her queendom is in dire straits. Bothwell managed to escape the, uh, the scene, and he flees to Scandinavia, where he was, unfortunately, imprisoned and went insane, uh, died and died about 10 years later. And check this out. You can actually still visit Dragsholm Castle in Denmark and see the pillar to which he was chained for the last 10 years of his life. That is pretty grim, being chained to the same pillar for, for 10 years, but that's what happened to him. Anyway, what happened to Mary? 
After being captured, she's forced to abdicate in favour of her son James, and a bloke, uh, a, a bloke named James Stewart, the Earl of Moray, becomes the regent. Uh, she's imprisoned in Loch Leven Castle, which is on an island in the middle of a lake. But she manages to escape, if you'll believe it, about a year later and flees south to England, where Elizabeth welcomes her with open arms. Gone is Elizabeth's anger at uh, you know Mary ignoring her marriage advice. Elizabeth is much, she's now much more pissed off about something else. This is very very interesting here because, you know, women's rights at this stage were not. At, a, at much of an apex, I have to say. Women weren't in a very good position socially, politically, religiously. Really, it was, it was just kind of a, a rubbish deal for women, generally speaking. So Elizabeth, as one of the most powerful, well, probably the most powerful woman in the world at this stage, definitely in Europe at any stage, she is absolutely spitting chips. She's furious that another queen could be stripped of her power in this way. And she, she's worried about the precedent that it's set when it comes to the security of her own throne, if, if, a group, if a group of men who aren't in charge of the country can raise an army and depose a queen just like that, Elizabeth is worried that the same thing is going to happen to her. And so as a result, she puts her foot down very, very hard indeed. She wants to support Mary and her rightful claim on the Scottish throne. She wants to march up to Scotland and say, listen here, you haggis-munching bastards, you can't just depose a queen like that, not while I'm around anyway. But things are complicated by the fact that Moray, the Scottish regent, He's a Protestant and wants to be mates with Protestant England. So, Mary, so Elizabeth has a pretty tr- tricky needle to thread here because she wants to support Mary's claim on her title as a woman, but she also wants uh, to keep Moray in power because he's a Protestant. And she handles it masterfully. Check this out. She arranges a trial of Mary for her involvement in the assassination of Darnley, right? Uh, but during this trial... Elizabeth is given a series of letters called the Casket Letters that supposedly establishes Mary's guilt in organising Darnley's murder. Historians today still argue over whether these letters are genuine, but Elizabeth, for one, she dismisses them. She says that all of the criticism of Mary is just rubbish attacks on a woman in a position of power. She's had it, and she's had a gutful of it. She's, she's sick and tired of it. And Elizabeth's very clever move here was essentially forcing a trial verdict that neither convicted or acquitted Mary of the murder. This means that she hadn't chucked Mary's sovereignty out on its ass, but she also wasn't able then to restore Mary to the throne. So Mary now, as a result of this, right, Mary is still a potentially legitimate Queen of Scotland, but cannot take her throne because of this trial. Masterful stuff from Elizabeth there. And as a result, Moray, as a Protestant, can go back to Scotland as a regent, and Mary remains in the English custody. Now, this is an absolute... This is genius stuff. This is really, really good stuff from, from Elizabeth because what it means is that she's appeased her Protestant uh, ally to the north in Moray, the regent, right? But she also hasn't completely ruined the reputation or, you know, ruined the, the claim of Mary to the Scottish throne as a, female, as a queen, as a female leader. Now, what happens next is Elizabeth, she's going around. She's saying, look, you know, we can't keep Mary here in prison, but she can't go back to Scotland because she'll just get ruined. So, you know, you know how it is. What are we going to do? And in 1569, Elizabeth, she puts her money where her mouth is. She tries to have her cake and eat it too, because what she says, she tries to negotiate a restoration of Mary to the Scottish throne on the condition that she converts to Protestantism. This is the best case scenario for Elizabeth because she has Mary, a queen, on the throne to the north and a Protestant on the throne of the North, which is all she wants. She wants both of those things and, again, trying to have her cake and eat it too. Unfortunately, these negotiations with the Scots, they fall through. And after that, again, unfortunately, Elizabeth 
she kind of gives up. She realises that she can't have her cake and eat it too, or as they say in Italy, I love this. I, I may have said this already on the podcast, I'm not sure. In Italy, the saying for you can't have your cake and eat it too is you can't have a full barrel and a drunk wife. And uh, Elizabeth is unable to have both of those things together. And so she kind of gives up, but you know, she's chatting a little bit about how she wants to help Mary and give her a hand with all of her troubles when... In reality, essentially, Mary at this stage is now just a prisoner. She, you know, again, she's bunged up in a, you know, in a fancy castle, uh, but she is essentially, the reality of it is she is just a prisoner. Mary keeps trying to get in touch with Elizabeth about it all, but, you know, Elizabeth's giving her the, the old San Diego slip. She's saying she's always busy. Oh, sorry, mate, I got Pilates that night. Oh, next Tuesday's no good either. Got a thing on. Maybe the next, look, just next few weeks, you know, we'll catch up. Look, I've got to go. I'll catch you later. Good talk, though. Really good. We'll catch up soon. And this is how it is for a number of years. You know, Mary is a little more than, than Elizabeth's prisoner. Although, again, condition's pretty good. She's on the line along the lines of, uh, you know, a, a 16th century five-star hotel here. She's got beautiful rooms and chambers and paintings and tapestries, all that sort of stuff. She's got personal servants. She's even got a bunch of chefs cooking her meals on, you know, bloody silver platters. But um, after the pendulum has swung to see Elizabeth, you know, genuinely trying to support Mary as a mate, as a cousin, and as a, as a fellow queen, we now start, at, uh, start to see it swing back towards the two of them hating each other again. Because as the months turn into years and Mary realises that she's not going to be able to get out of this gilded cage, her resentment of Elizabeth grows and things are, are no less acrimonious on the other end, I'll tell you this, on from Elizabeth's side of things. Because in, a, in response to Elizabeth shoring up her Protestant rule by locking up Mary, Pope Pius V the, the, the issues a papal bull denouncing Elizabeth as a heretic and excommunicating her. The papal bull is titled Regnans in Excelsis and basically says that every bloke in England is no longer subject to Elizabeth as the sovereign, as she doesn't have the divine right to rule anymore, and basically says, you you know, look, you fellas, you're allowed to overthrow this Protestant if you like, no worries at all, no punishment coming your way, you know, just go for it, no worries at all. Now, enormous numbers of Catholics are executed for their subversive behaviour after this, uh, this papal bull here. But what's really interesting uh, about this as there, a huge number of plots emerge to put Mary's still Catholic ass onto the throne of England after uh, you know Elizabeth has suffered another attempt at delegitimizing her, her her queendom here this time from the Pope. People go, oh bloody hell! Remember, there's that bird that, that Mary, right? She's in a castle somewhere. She's a Catholic. The Pope would love her. Let's get her on the throne. So all these plots are bubbling away, and in 1571, it is all over Red Rover for the relationship of Mary and Elizabeth because you know at this stage. Uh, well, the biggest, the biggest thing, the, the final nail in the car, it's not so much a nail, it's a huge rivet here, because the Rodolfi plot is discovered. This was a plot that tried to, that was going to assassinate Elizabeth and replace her as queen with old mate Mary. Now, Mary was actively involved in this plot, and that meant that Elizabeth completely forgot any idea whatsoever of reinstalling her to the Scottish throne, and further had to recognise her now as a pretty legitimate threat to the English crown as well. So after the Rodolfi plot, Mary's five-star hotel status also comes under threat as security around her tightens hugely. There are many other plots that come and go, none of which are successful, and not all of which Mary is actually involved with or even aware of, but this doesn't change anything between the two queens. Mary is under house arrest in the, you know, the back of Burke, and Elizabeth has no interest in trying to patch things up with her. Now, in 1583, uh, after the Throckmorton plot, another attempt from the English Catholics to murder Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne, uh, it fails dismally, and Elizabeth cracks down on these dissidents in a huge way. Firstly, she gets some legislation going that means that anyone in the line of succession, for example, Mary, who is still a legitimate heir to the English throne, would be executed even if anyone plotted on their behalf. So if you're in the line of succession and you plot to take the throne for yourself, or if someone else does it for you, you get your head chopped off. What this means for poor old Mary 
is that anyone, if anyone plots on her behalf, even if she doesn't know about it, she's on the hook. Anyway, as, 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 as long as, in addition to these laws, uh, poor old Mary is now moved to Chartley Hall in Staffordshire, which is about as far as you can be from the sea in England. <laughs> this, is not a, this is not an accident, it's not a mistake. Uh, uh, Elizabeth is very clearly worried about Mary escaping by boat, so she moves her as far away from the coast as possible. And also on top of this, Mary is guarded incredibly strictly. Gone are the tapestries, gone is the Tudor master chef. She is under, you know, she's being watched 24-7. So obviously you can tell that Elizabeth, she's not mucking around when it comes to all these threats to her reign and her life, and she's had enough of this rivalry nonsense. And as a result of this, she summons her spy master to her, Sir Francis Walsingham, and, uh, you know, he says, she says to him, mate, listen, bloody sick of all this Mary nonsense. It's your job as spymaster to keep me safe. Uh, what are you going to do about it? And Walsingham goes, okay, well, listen, Your Majesty, I will, uh, I will sit down, have a good think about it. I will, uh, I'll come back to you with some proposals and we will, uh, we will figure out a way to remove ourselves of this, uh, you know, this troublesome Mary all once and for all. So Walsingham, he goes back to his room, he sits down, pops the thinking cap on and, uh, you know, and really, uh, really tries to nut it out. And uh, he thinks about how things would just be so much easier if Mary were dead. And so he decides to implicate Mary in a plot so Elizabeth can execute her with the legislation I talked about earlier and wash her hands of the whole business. So Walsingham, he kicks off what will be known as the Babington plot by sending off a double agent named Guilford Gifford to work on recruiting some blokes who want Elizabeth dead. Now, old Gilbo, he still helps to smuggle letters from this bloke, Anthony Babington, into Chartley Hall by hiding them in the corks of beer bottles that were being taken to Mary's room. Seems like the poor bird was hitting the bottle at this stage, unfortunately for Mary. But this is when Mary buggers it all up beyond belief because she replies to those letters saying how she reckons it's a cracking idea to murder Elizabeth and how she's planning her escape to to Chartley Hall. And of course, Gilbo, the double agent, he takes these letters to his boss, who hands them over to Elizabeth, who is stoked. Got her, boys. Got her. Good on you. You've done well. Well done, Walsingham. Well done, Giffo. Uh, You've done a great job. So in August 1586, Elizabeth uses this as a pretext to round up all of the conspirators, which of course includes Mary, and uh, she's arrested on the 11th, and she's put on trial for treason under the Bond of Association and the Act for the Security of the Queen's Person. Now, even now, even now at the end of it, despite the fact that these two queens have hated each other for so long, even now, Elizabeth isn't that that keen on chopping off Mary's head. And I'll tell you why. Firstly, it just doesn't look all that good. Executing a monarch of any kind, especially when you yourself are a monarch, you know, it's the sort of throwing stones in glass houses type thing. You don't want people to get start, you know, sort of getting ideas now, do you? Secondly, beyond it all, there is still some part of her that wants to spare Mary, despite all the stuff they've been to through together. They are still cousins and they're both queens in a world of kings. But it is actually Mary who makes it, uh, you know, hard for Elizabeth to spare her because she refuses to not acknowledge the legitimacy of the trial, saying that she can't be tried for treason as she's never been an English subject of Elizabeth. So she doesn't give Elizabeth many options when it comes to sparing her life. This, of course, means that the trial, of course, it's, it's a kangaroo court. Uh, Mary is not given legal counsel. She's not given access to any of the evidence. She's not even allowed to call on witnesses. And, of course, surprise, surprise, she's found guilty by all but one of the 30 or 40 lords who try her, and she is sentenced to death on the twelfth or the twenty fifth of October in fifteen eighty six, even after this, Elizabeth hesitated for a long time before signing the death warrant, and and this is where things get you know there's a lot there's one more final little interesting twist here, uh, depending on how cynical you are about Elizabeth, I suppose, because this is how it shakes out. On the first of February in fifteen eighty seven, Elizabeth finally and many say reluctantly signed the death warrant and gave it to one of her counsellors, William Davison. Now Elizabeth later claimed 
to ask him to not deliver it to her council just yet, but he does so, and the council decides to go ahead with the execution without even telling Elizabeth they're going to. Now, this means that on the 7th of February, Mary is told that she's going to be executed the next day, and sure enough, the next morning, she's brought out to a huge scaffold. She's given a white blindfold with gold trimming, and she's made to kneel down on a little cushion. Now, the executioner, he raises his axe and brings it down to behead Mary, but he makes an absolute meal of it and ends up needing three chops to finish the job. Reportedly then, he holds up the disembodied head, at which point it falls out of the wig that Mary had been wearing, exposing the fact that poor old Mary had wispy grey hair and not the auburn locks that it, you know, it had seemed that she'd had. And of course, that's it. That's it for poor old Mary, dead at 44 years of age, 19 of which had been in English custody. She's inhumed in Peterborough Cathedral for a, you know, for a time at least. And uh, when Elizabeth hears about the execution, apparently it is said that she flies into a rage and accuses her counsel of acting without her permission. What's even more ridiculous, though, is that she accuses Willie Davison of deliberately disobeying her by handing the warrant to the council and even locks him up for it. And this is where how cynical you might be, you know, might affect how you feel about Elizabeth at this point. As you could argue that all the blustering and locking up of councillors and the like was just a handy excuse to avoid Mary's blood being on her hands. But in a way... Elizabeth did give herself plausible deniability when it came to the execution, and so she could turn around and say, no, look, I didn't even want to kill her. I had nothing to do with that. It was one of my counsellors who did it against my will. But then again, maybe she really did feel terrible about killing her cousin, and maybe her counsel just, you know, jumped at the political expediency of removing this rival. Who knows? I don't. I have no idea. Anyway. Elizabeth went on to rule for 44 years in total and got all sorts of stuff done, most famously beating the Spanish Armada when English and Spain went to war in 1588. And her rule saw blokes like William Shakespeare and Francis Drake get up and about. And she remains to, you know, to this day one of the most famous and iconic English monarchs in history. She ruled until her death in 1603 at the age of 69. Nice. And it was buried in Westminster Abbey. But she died unmarried and childless. And this is where there is one final little twist for us to enjoy. Because who takes the throne after the childless Elizabeth dies? If you'll believe it, it ends up being none other than James, the son of Mary and Lord Darnley, as he was the closest relative of of Elizabeth. You'd have to look at a family tree to see how it all worked, but through essentially through the fact that they were cousins, Mary's son ends up becoming the next heir to the English throne. And further to this, despite the fact that Mary was a Catholic, her son James had been raised as a Protestant and he had ruled Scotland since 1567 as James VI. So then he ascends to the English throne once Elizabeth dies as James I of England and James VI of Scotland. And this begins the hundred-year process that ended with the creation of Great Britain in 1707, when Scotland and England signed the Treaty of Union and became one united country. James's ascension rather neatly ties up our whole story here. When he becomes the King of England, Elizabeth got what she would have wanted with a continued Protestant England, and Mary got what she would have wanted with her son going on to establish a new dynasty of kings, the Stuarts. But even more neater than that, our story is tied up by what James did eight years into his reign in 1612. What he does is he orders that his mother's remains be brought from Peterborough Cathedral and buried in Westminster Abbey alongside the remains of Elizabeth. And today, the remains of these two women, cousins, rivals, queens, still lie in the same chapel together. 
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. And geez, what a good one it is. I really enjoyed reading about this one. I hope you got something out of having a listen to what what these two women got up to throughout their lives, and you know how how their relationships evolved and changed, and, and all of the historical impact that uh, you know this this whole period had. Anyway, that is that. Usual boring announcements here. We've got a, a website for you to visit. Halfhousehistory.net is where you can uh, see all the episodes, uh, previous episodes of the podcast. Uh, and it's there you'll find links to the Twitter page at History without an O. Wouldn't fit. Very annoying. Uh, and a Patreon page if you want to chuck us a few bucks. Of course, no obligation to do so, but it is appreciated. Uh, History at gmail.com. You can send us an email with an episode idea or just if you want to get in touch with some feedback or if you want me to send you some stickers uh, I'll do that for free. Just send me through your address and I'll send out some stickers. No worries at all. I already sent out a bunch and I've got plenty more to send. I may have ordered a little too many from Vistaprint. So, you know, I'm very, very keen to get them off my hands. Also, I, I believe you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We've had some difficulties with it, but I think they all should be smoothed out there. So if you want to subscribe there, you can leave a rating as well, which I, I do. I, I really do appreciate. Thank you to those of you who have already uh, reviewed the show there. Thanks so much for that. And uh, that is just about that. We are going to close out the show as usual with a question posed on Reddit. I cannot find, uh, I, I, well, I'm assuming it was from Reddit, but I can't find, I, I came across this and then I, now I can't find it. So I can't give credit to the person who originally asked. I'm very, very sorry to the person who originally asked it. I don't think I made it up. I'm not clever enough to have thought of this question myself. But uh, for those, for whoever, whoever posted, I, I can't find your post. I'm so sorry that I can't credit you. But it, it is a very, very, very good question. Very thought-provoking question this week. What level was Queen Elizabeth I when she evolved into Queen Elizabeth II?